Jesus' name, amen. 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 Uh, as you sit down, please turn your Bible to uh, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 17 today. Thank you to our choir, and as they sang, we do ask the Lord to search our hearts. And Pastor Doug, thank you for your ministry. 50 years, um, I don't know what the statistics are on it, but 50 years of ordained ministry is uh, a statistical exception. It's unique, it's wonderful, and it's a gift to us to have received so much of that ministry, and me personally. You blessed us, you blessed us, in it. so thank you, and congratulations, and Mary Jane to you too, enduring it with him for 50 years, and the joys, right, all the joys, and the ministry, and the difficulty of it, thank you. Genesis chapter 2, want to look at verses 4 through 17, this is God's word. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant in the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is, is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work, to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of God. The, the flowers fade, the grass withers, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do come to your word, your perfect word, your inerrant word, your infallible word, which comes to us to search us, to examine us, and to lead us. And so, God, as we come to this text, would you search us and lead us, starting with me, but for every one of us for that. God, just with this in mind and Pastor Doug's ministry, we also, also want to just give thanks for that, for those 50 years of faithful preaching, 50 years of ministry that, um, that, that you've accomplished through your servant and that we've been able to enjoy. And so glorify, you, bless your servant, uh, Pastor Doug, in his ongoing work as well as me as we work through this text. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today what we want to do is to look at what life was like before evil came into the world. Um, you know, one of the things that makes the Bible so different than many of the ancient myths is the way that it describes uh, creation in the beginning. Um, and it's different even the way that it describes a paradise. 
Uh, and so let me ask you this as we start off. If you had to describe an ideal world for you, if you think of that ideal world that you live on, you know, would it require work or would it have no work as part of it? You know, would it be measured by work or would it be measured by leisure? And I don't know if there's any official surveys that have ever asked a question like that, but, you know, my guess is that many uh, would answer a question like that, that they want a world that's marked by leisure, by fun, by activity, and not by work. And you know what? That's what many of the ancient myth writers would have seen as well. And if that's your thought of paradise, you know, we're going to break that bubble just a little bit today. That's because when God created the heavens and the earth, when he created this paradise and the great garden of Eden, he created a garden that required work. And in fact, he said about that garden that it was very good. Now, if we're honest, we want to point out that even the things that we love to do require work. I mean, sometimes we work the hardest on some of the things that bring us pleasure. You might think about that perfect place that you would love to be. Maybe it's a fun place or a restful place or a place that brings you great peace. And the amount of work that you do to be a part of that. I remember a, a few years ago, we had the opportunity to go to Disney World, you know, the Magic Kingdom. It was for us this once-in-a-lifetime trip. You know, some of you would say that's once-in-a-lifetime is too much in a lifetime. For us, a once-in-a-lifetime trip, and, and if you know anything about me, you would know that, you know, I'm not going to go on a whim. I'm not going to show up late, and I'm not going to leave early. Uh, when I plan to go to the Magic Kingdom, I mean, every second of it is going to be magical. From the day, the, door, the minute they open to the minute they close, you know, this is the place where dreams are made. And, and when I say, um, you know, this, I'm going to get every single penny out of my vacation, right? I know I can get some amen from some penny pinchers here. Now, I'm the kind of guy who can make going to Disney sound like a job, like the thing of nightmares. But we're going to go have fun with all this, right? And in the end, even our times of work in those times, they pay off. They create memories and connections um, and, and fun for us. I mean, some of you, I know, are going to go hunting soon. I mean, hunting is, you know, one of those strange bits of work to me. I've not been ever hunting. I should go sometime. But hunters around the world, they'll get up at, at some dark time in the morning, earlier than maybe they even go to work, totally unacceptable, walk around <laughs> incredible distances, spray themselves with animal scents, sit in discomfort for hours, and love every minute of it, you know, you know, there's a wonder inside of that, a totally and thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable kind of work. Well, again, as we think about our best places, our vacations, our homes, our church, they require work. And the thing of that, it doesn't make them any less good. Well, what we want to do is we look at Genesis 2, 4 through 7 is to see how much God has given to us. And the calling that he gives, the responsibility that he gives to take care of, of those things. You know, many people dream of having God's blessings without the work that's needed in order to enjoy them. Sometimes we want that with money. We say, you know, give me the money, but just don't make me work for it. Other times we want it with our family. You know, you may have heard of these mythical problem-free kids. Or maybe you've heard of the conflict-free marriage. Other times we want it in our own spiritual life. You know, God, shower down blessings upon me. Oh, wait, God, you want obedience, 
I don't know about that. Never mind with those blessings. When we look at Genesis chapter 2, the striking thing about the Garden of Eden is that even in paradise, God's blessings were not automatic. They were directed, and they were directly connected with work. It was good work, but it was, it was work. Now, every week when I go through Genesis, I want to go back to the original context of this book. Remember, it was given to the people of God at a specific time. In this case, um, Moses, uh, God gave this book to Moses as Israel was entering into the promised land. There they are at the edge of the promised land, ready to go in. They've had 400 years of slavery. Now they're on the borders and looking at what their national life would look like. National life in a land which we're told was flowing with milk and honey. They needed to consider what they were being given. And they needed to consider what they were going to do with it. You know, as they looked at this new land, this new opportunity that they had, they needed to cultivate it according to God's, uh, according to God's design, according to God's plan. They would inherit something that was very good. And they needed to cultivate a national life that um, corresponded with the national blessing, which they wanted to have from the Lord. They needed to cultivate their spiritual life to stay rooted and connected with God. There was an enormous blessing that was coming this way, their, their way, but it was one that was going to come with work, from conquering the land to caring for the land. And they needed to see how God originally created this world to operate and to understand their own land with God's design in order to live according to that design. That's important for us as well. You know, God has given us a wonderful world. I mean, God has given us our jobs. God has given us our families. Um, God has given us our church. God has given us our nation. And these things are all meant to be blessings to us. We cannot think that we would experience any of those blessings without work. And so here, as we look in Genesis 2, in this Garden of Eden, this paradise, we want to learn about receiving God's gifts and stewarding his gifts and stewarding them by faith. Because all of God's gifts come by grace. All of them are free gifts. The question is for us, will we cultivate them? Will we draw God's blessing in them? Or will we fail to take advantage of the things that God has given to us? That's what Adam was called to do. That's what we're called to do. Because even in this perfect world, God, in the perfect world we see here in the garden, God requires work. So that's what we want to look at, this, this blessing that God gives in work. Now, I have two main points today, and if you have your bulletin, you can follow along with where they are. Um, the, the first one comes from verses 4 through 15, and that's that God's gifts must be received and cultivated. And the second point is verses 16 and 17, that God's commands must be obeyed. So let's first look at verses 4 through 15 and the receiving of God's gifts and the cultivating them. So the first thing we want to look at here is the structure of the passage. I especially want to just pause here at verse 4. Now, here's where it's helpful to have your Bibles open, you know, because it doesn't show up on the screen, but you can really see it in some of the typecasts if you look inside of, uh, of your Bible, because there's a transition that happens between verse 3 and then into verse 4. Verse 3 wraps up the seven days, um, the first seven days of creation, by telling us all about God's Sabbath day. And verse 4, by the way it's built, it shows us this really uh, a new chapter. Remember the chapters like Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You know, God didn't put that in his original uh, book of Genesis. Those were added later. You know, so the divisions are, are artificial to the text itself. They can be helpful in many cases. But, you know, this is one point where we see actually a really new chapter begins in Genesis 2, verse 4. And this is what we read. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth 
and the heavens. So all throughout chapter 1, all, all the way into chapter 2, verse 3, we've seen God, uh, his six days of creation, we see his seventh day of rest. Really what that's given us is this overarching view of God's creative activity. We see God's creation from the big picture. But starting in, here in verse 4, we see God's specific work. We see it down to more detail, especially in the creation of Adam and Eve. There, there's a term that's there. It says, these are the generations. If you were to read through the whole book of Genesis, you'd see that this phrase happens 10 times. It's one of those interesting numbers in Genesis. It happens 10 times. And what it is, it's like a, you know, again, it's like a chapter division saying, hey, we're going to focus on, we're going to have a new focus now from, for, um, for, for this next section. In this case, the generation he's talking about is that first generation, the first generation of Adam and Eve as, as God's specific creation. All right, so another thing we want to notice in verse 4, the second thing is the way that, God, the way that um, it speaks about God. In it, it says, the day uh, that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You know, in, in this passage, it's, it uses the, the, the words Lord God. You know, that's God's covenant name. It's that word Yahweh, the, what he'd eventually reveal his name to his people in. What he's saying in this is that this is not some general God. Um, but it's the very personal God, the creator of the universe who made all things. This is, this is Israel's God. This is the God of the nations who has a name. And so God reveals himself as this loving uh, creator who's in covenant with his people. Um, the Lord God is creator. In fact, the only time that the book of Genesis stops using the words Lord God, especially in these next few chapters, uh, the only time it doesn't use those two words together is with the lies of the serpent. With Satan's lies himself. He doesn't want to call him Lord God. He just calls him God, right? He, just, he wants to take away his name. He wants to take away his covenant love, his co covenant relationship. And so that's what he does in the temptation he gives to Adam and Eve soon. Well, the third thing you'll notice in verse 4 as you look at it is the poetic shift. You'll see first it talks about the, the heavens and the earth. And then just a few words later it says the earth and the heavens. It's a shift here to show what God has done inside of his creation. Again, it's that change in perspective. He's going from the macro view of what God did in these six days and resting on the seventh and then going to the micro view of his individual creation of Adam and Eve and their time in the garden. So Genesis 1 and 2, they're not two different stories of creation. They're two different perspectives of talking about the same historical event. But Genesis 2 focuses on the relationship and that covenant relationship between God and man. All right, so what does God do here? Uh, verses 5 and 6, we see the description of the earth. And, um, and the first description that we see of the earth in verses 5 and 6 is that it was at the one time both abundant, but it was also at the same time uncultivated. Abundant but uncultivated. It was really this untapped possibility. Right? Untapped possibility. Verses 5 and 6. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant in the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So over the last few weeks, we've been looking at how God um, created the heavens and the earth. He formed the earth. He filled the earth. Um, but we see that there was something which le he left to be done, and that was the cultivation of the earth. We could see in verses 5 and 6 the big reason that there was no plant that had grown in the field, that there was uh, no man to work that ground. 
And so what does he do in response to that? Verse 7, we see the special creation of man by God. It's retelling that, that the story of man's creation. Go back to Genesis 1.26, but again, telling it through that covenant relational perspective, that man's relationship with God, man's relationship with the land. We see God creating man here as a human soul, body and spirit together as a human soul. Uh, so where do we see the creation of his body, his physical being? We see that here. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground. And then, then we see the spiritual nature of God, uh, the spiritual nature of man as being the image of God. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Here we see, you know, man's creation was different than all of the other animals. This verse says that the man became a living creature. That's the, the fifth occurrence of this word living, and it shows that, that Adam was, was much like the rest of the living animals, except for that big difference of God breathing, putting his own breath into him, giving that spiritual life, creating him in his image. It's different, and it's very important. And then so we see, what does God do with man? As he's created him now, he puts him inside a garden. Verses 8 and 9 talk about um, the garden that God had already created. He already caused that garden to grow. But he takes Adam and he puts him in that garden for everything he needs for life, security, for prosperity. Verse 8 says, If the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So another thing we'll notice as you look at it is we see two important trees that are there, the tree of life and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in a minute. Uh, but for now, we see that this tree of life would have sustained Adam as long as he was on the earth. There, the tree of life is referred to in other parts of the Bible. Um, I have a few passages here from the book, book of Revelation because we see even in there, it's, the tree of life is connected with eternal life. Uh, for all those who partake of it. If you look at Genesis, or I'm sorry, Revelation 2.7, Revelation 2.7, the Bible tells us that the, the tree of life uh, continues to be present inside the paradise of God, right? Uh, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you look at Revelation 22.2, you know, what does this tree of life do? Um, you know, we see that um, in that new heaven, the new earth, and that paradise, being with God, um, there's a tree of life, and that is healing to all the nations. Revelation 22.2 says, Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, who has access to that? Revelation 22.14 speaks of that. It's those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior has been cleansed of their sin. Revelation 22, 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. You know, to be in this paradise of God, to know the healing of the nations, it comes through those who've been forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this tree, this tree of life, it gives eternal life. That's what Adam had access to. You know, we see this, this access to life forever. All right, so jumping on the next section, we look at Genesis 2, 10 through 14. What do we see? But we see God's provision. We see rivers. We see gold, bdellium, onyx stone. There was this convergence of rivers 
um, you know, making it an extremely lush land for Adam and Eve to live in. And, you know, again, everything was provided for them. You know, we also see with the convergence of the rivers together, uh, you know, that the location of the Garden of Eden somewhere within the Middle East. And so finally, with this beautiful world and this perfect setup, um, God then gives them in his instructions. We see this in verses 15 through 17. Okay, so that's the scene, right? Perfect garden, God's provision, God taking man, put him in the garden. And then the remainder of verse 15 concludes our, our, this first point today. And notice what he says in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. All right, so God creates Adam in his image and he gives him responsibility of cultivating and keeping the garden. Now notice, God did not give Adam a magical garden. That no work was required. There's nothing close to a myth here. We see his responsibility to work it and keep it. That's a good description of our work even today. Working and keeping. That's the two parts you see in verse 15. So the first, he was called to, to work the garden. He needed to cultivate it. He needed to make it grow. Uh, there were no plants in the field. That was Adam's job to cultivate. This was part of his dominion mandate that we see in uh, Genesis chapter 1. The call that Adam had to, to, to take dominion of the world, to display God's purposes in creation, to draw out all that latent energy that was there uh, for the good of the world, the flourishing of, of, of his family, and the glory and the worship of God. But the second part we see is Adam's call to keep the garden. He was supposed to protect it to protect it from harm. You might wonder in a place like this, what was there to protect it from? Well, there's no sin in the world. There's no evil in the world, right? Well, well, in the next chapter, we're going to see what he needed to protect it from. He needed to keep it from the influence of the devil. There may not have been many threats to this paradise, but there was at least one that he needed to protect himself, that he needed to protect himself from, his wife from, his world from, his children from. He needed to protect them from the deceiving lies of the devil. And so these twofold, this twofold aspect of man's work is really important for us, even as we think about uh, different aspects of our own life, working and keeping. We all have our garden. We have the parts of our lives that are given to us, especially from God. It's, it's not of plants, of course, but it's in our relationships and in our resources, the things that God does give to us. So on, on the one side, there's a call to cultivate. There's a call to make things new. There's a call to make things grow. On the other side, there's a responsibility to protect. And unless we keep those two things um, in mind, we're likely to miss out on God's uh, purposes and our blessings and the gifts he gives. So you can think about some of them and think about whether you've tended your garden. You can think about your personal finances. You know, on the one side, it is, it is good to earn money, to save it, to invest it, to generate wealth, and to give. You know, those are part of growing. On the other hand, we put our financial well-being um, at risk, we create stress for ourselves through excessive debt, by gambling, taking unnecessary risks, living with discontentment, living with greed. You know, our, in our personal finances, we see this need to cultivate, to grow, and to protect. Another example is our married life. On the one side, that we are called to cultivate a great marriage relationship with our spouse. We're to spend time together, pray together, enjoy intimacy, learn each other's interests, even go on vacations together. But we know that we also need to protect against a lot of things. We need to protect against bitterness, against pornography, against busyness, against adultery. You know, there are always threats that are coming against marriage. We need to, to work our marriage garden and to keep it. You can think about our spiritual life. 
We're called to worship, to, to read our Bible, to grow in our relationship with God and to pray. We also need to flee temptation, to resist the devil, and to walk in obedience. There's a working and there is a, a keeping with all of these things. So the call to stewardship is to, to make good things grow and then to protect against evil and to, to risk. You know, that's what's, um, you know, so we want to look for what's good. You know, focus our efforts, seeing those things grow, protect um, ourselves and others from um, the things which are, are evil. All right, so that leads us to our second point of enjoying the gifts that God has given to us. We've seen receive and cultivate, and the next thing that we do is that we uh, recognize that God's commands and all that he gives to us must be obeyed. God's commands must be obeyed. We can see this especially in verses 16 and 17. So verse 15 gives the guidance that Adam needs for life in the garden, some instructions that are there. In verses 16 and 17, we see a specific command that God gives to Adam. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And one of the reasons why people think that obedience to God is so hard is because all they see is limitations. Oh, you mean I can't do that? I can't do that anymore if I follow Christ? You mean I have to do those things if I become a Christian? And what's missed out in that whole thing is the enormous generosity of God. They miss out on what God has already done and his gracious kindness and what he's already provided. They focus on what God says not to do and miss out on the possibilities that God has for them. And so there's an important reminder in the passage of just how much God had given to Adam. Notice what he says. He says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. You can think of how much that God had given to Adam. God had given so many trees, and he limited one. Part of stewarding God's gifts is to see all the good things that, that, that God has given to us and to recognize that some of the things that he keeps from us are often even kept away for our own good, right? But look at his generosity. Verse 17, though, we, we see that limit. They shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what's, what's that about? Remember, there's nothing inherently wrong with this tree or with its fruit. God created it, and it was good. There was also nothing magical about the fruit on it that would confer anything godlike to Adam and Eve. Uh, Genesis, really, it's a non-magical, it's a non-mythical book. You know, we also recognize there's nothing wrong with knowledge or learning. Nothing wrong with knowing what is good, what's bad. I mean, these are parts of being human. But what was it that was going on here? Well, the tree itself was the test. I mean, the tree was this test. It was a test to see whether Adam would let God be the boss or whether Adam would decide to be his own boss. Really, at the root of it, it was a test of authority. Would he take on God's authority for himself and say, it's mine? Would he decide that he was the one to decide what was good and evil for himself? Or would he begin to understand good and evil and continue to understand good and evil for what God had already shown to him? Would he strike out on his own, ignoring what God had shown him, and decide for himself? Well, that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. It was about what it represented. I mean, the temptation was the, the, the tree itself. And ever since his day, we've been doing the same thing. You know, haven't we um, said that we will be the boss of what's right or wrong? Sometimes we even do it in the way we describe sin. We redefine actions as being less than sinful by somewhat changing the language of it. 
Instead of calling it lust and lust of the heart, we just call it a little look. Instead of calling it revenge, we say it's what's owed to us. Instead of calling it greed, we say I earned it so I can keep it. Instead of calling it the Lord's Day, we call it the weekend. Instead of calling it adultery, we call it an affair. Instead of calling it the taking of an unborn life, it becomes a woman's right to choose. You know, it's the way that we use different words to describe sin in a different way. And it becomes a question of authority. Would Adam trust God or would Adam trust himself? Would Adam be content with every other tree of the garden or would Adam be discontent and want, and want the one thing that God said not to partake of? Would Adam be satisfied to let God be God or would Adam himself want to be God? Remember, Adam had the promise of life. He had the promise of eternal life to, to, to live forever. He had access to this tree of life. But he needed to obey the single command given to him by God. He needed to accept God's superabundant blessing and the limit. There are vast implications of this command. And we call this relationship between Adam and God, we call it the covenant of works. Again, abundant blessing that was given, but a requirement to obey this one command. And if he obeyed that command, the rest of his descendants would prosper, his family would prosper. And if he disobeyed, he would set a paradigm for all of his descendants to follow. Now, we all have that same decision. We have that decision of who will be the boss of us. And we've all, at some point or another, come to Adam's same choice. That I will be my own boss. And we've made that multiple times. We've chosen God. Uh, we've chosen to be God over our own lives. We've decided to trust ourselves instead of the Lord. We've decided not to give God the worship that he is due. And then we live lives separate from him. We've all made that same choice. And we get back to Adam. We know what happens next. You can flip forward to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks, so I'll tell you what happens here. Adam eats the fruit together with his wife. And he fails in his responsibility. He had a responsibility to cultivate the garden. He had the responsibility to protect it. He had the responsibility to care for his, his wife and his descendants. But instead of cultivating the garden he was given, he ate that fruit that he wasn't supposed to eat. And he left Eve unprotected under the temptation of the devil. And he experienced the death that was threatened by God in this. For us to know the blessings of God, we need to live in faithful covenant with God. I mean, on our side, that, that our covenant is based on faith. We enter into that covenant based on faith. That's what we bring into that relationship with God. It's, it's not something, though, that we're presumptuous about. Some people think, maybe some people here think you will know God's blessing automatically, even without faith. And that's not the way it works. God never created a world that would support life on its own without the, the obedience of faith. We see it even here with Adam. Neither did God give uh, the spiritual life. He doesn't give spiritual life that grows without faith. We can look at Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 13 as an example. It says this, to, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice what it says here. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? There is a call to work. Even difficult work. But you notice what comes first. God has already worked inside of you. God has already brought life into you. God has already sent his spirit into you. He's given you gospel promises. He's put your, his law in your mind and in your heart. He's given you a new heart. He's given you all the equipment, just like God gave Adam inside the garden. He says, work it and keep it. Receive it by faith. 
and to do something with that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Take my promise and do something with it. I remember when a good friend shared with me this next passage, Proverbs 24. Proverbs 24, and it was a time that I was in a spiritual slump. You know, I was dealing with my own temptation, my own sin, and, you know, it was this verse that, that really shook me uh, to remind me of God's call to faith. Remind me that, you know, I just couldn't be complacent. So it's this, I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense, and behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and his stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a robber and want like an armed man. You'd be given a vineyard, you'd be given so much, and when we waste it by laziness, by spiritual slumber, we see spiritual poverty or other poverties raise their head and it destroys us. It's true of our spiritual life, it's true in our marriage, in our family, in the workplace, and growth takes work. And some of you are not cultivating it, and you'll see poverty, and you'll see want, and it comes upon you. I mean, and, and so just let me ask you, is it time to start tending your garden? See, God had given Adam a warning, and the warning was this, when you eat of it, you shall surely die. In this role, God, Adam had a huge responsibility. He was a representative to the human race. I mean, Romans 5 talks about the consequences of his decision. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, people understand Romans 5.12 in different ways, but I think the, the, the Reformed way the most, the, is the most clear way of understanding is that Adam was a chosen representative of the human race. God picked Adam to represent us all. God put him in the best environment that he could possibly be given. There was no sin. There was no evil. God provided abundance all around him, even gave him a blessed spouse and a perfect marriage. Now, sometimes people may think, well, how can I be responsible for Adam's decision? And at least one part of that answer is that God picked out the best person and put him in the best situation to make that decision on your behalf. It's a decision that you would have made and that I would have made if we were in that same spot. In fact, we really make the decision almost every day of our life in deciding to be our own God and not trust the God who's revealed himself in the scripture. Again, this is called the covenant of works. The covenant of works. If Adam obeyed it, he would have lived forever, and so would have his descendants, but he didn't. But God, right, don't you love those words? But God, in his great mercy, still established a way of salvation. It's called the covenant of grace. We're going to look at that more in the future when we come to Genesis 3, the covenant of grace. But the thing that's important for us to see is that in this choice that God gave Adam, that we're guilty under that. We're condemned under him. He ate, and he was promised him the day that he ate of it, he would surely die. And he ate, breaking that one commandment that was given to him, and in that all of his descendants sinned and fell. We're in need of a savior, all of us. And that's where Jesus came in. You see, Jesus made a new covenant, the covenant of grace by his own death and resurrection. See, this covenant was based on Jesus' obedience. He obeyed every commandment that was given to him from God. He lived by faith, he trusted his Father, and he provided a way of salvation for us. 
says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And just as Adam's decision would affect the whole human race, so Jesus' decision would affect all those and will affect all those who believe in him. Romans 5.19 says, will be made righteous. What Adam was required to do in the garden. Again, it's the same way we see that garden. We see that salvation is not automatic. It depends on putting our faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, everything is, is there. We receive it for ourselves. We need to believe that Jesus meets the demands of God on our life. We need to surrender our lives to him. We need to walk against him.